look at the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth uh, in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1. And so this morning we're going to take a look at uh, the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And I've called this, if you're keeping score, I've called it the waiting. And this morning I just want to kind of tell the story. I, to be honest, I, I don't, I'm not going to be reading the scriptures this morning, although they'll be on the screen. I'm just going to more or less share the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, but first, before we do that, I think in the context of the entirety of Scripture, I think we have to take a look at uh, what we mean by the story of God or the story of the Bible. Because when we talk about the waiting at Christmas for the Savior and so on, I think it's really key and important to understand why are we waiting and what are we waiting for and what is this all about. And so in the context of everything that we celebrate at this time of year, we need to take first a look at the entirety of the narrative. And so we start with creation. And very briefly, creation, at creation, God out of chaos created this wonderful ordered world of beauty and potential. And then out of dust, he creates and appoints humans represented by Adam and Eve to oversee the world, and multiply and create new communities. And so it was just a beautiful picture. If you look in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you get a picture of that. And humans are to take this good world they were assigned to develop all of its potential while living in complete harmony and relationship with God and each other. And everything looked great in the beginning. And then we had what... The scriptures refer to and what theologians refer to as the great fall. And in, as the story goes, humans go about the task they've been given and they're faced with choices about what's good and evil. Will they trust God's wisdom or will they seize autonomy and define good and evil for themselves? And unfortunately, a dark, mysterious character referred to in the scriptures as the serpent representing all that's evil in the world he comes and he enters the story and he represents evil at its source and it entices the humans to doubt God's generosity and rebel against them and it leads to a great disaster. Humanity's relationship as a result because they, they thought that they knew better, their relationship with God was fractured and their relationships with themselves, their families and the earth break down and pride and violence reign. And the tension between the just and generous creator God and the rebellious nations who have given into evil develop the plot conflict that drives the entire storyline of the Old Testament. See, because God wanted to bring his people back to himself. And so we see with the onset of this redemption project that God through one family chosen among the nations, the people of Abraham, his people, later who become Israel, are the chosen ones. And so from Abraham and Sarah, they're promised a child, and from that child, as God promised, would be a multitude of peoples and nations that would ultimately uh, be God's people. They later became Israel. But Israel fails in its response to God 
and his guidance through rebellion. The nation is ultimately carried off into exile, still waiting for the promised Savior, the promised Messiah who would deliver them. And so through a lot of disobedience and through hundreds of years, the nation of Israel goes into steep decline. And so the storyline of the Old Testament comes to a close, but with all of the tensions unresolved. And we're left with a truly epic story waiting for a final ending. And we enter into our story today, in fact. We enter into this story where eventually, as we celebrate Christmas, Jesus of Nazareth enters the picture. He's called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And we sang about him this morning. We sang to him this morning, in fact, because he is, in fact, here this morning. And the four Gospels in the New Testament present him as the resolution to all of the conflict in the Old Testament. He proclaimed that he was bringing God's kingdom back over the earth, and he would confront the tragic effects of evil. And his plan was to defeat humanity's evil and sin, and was to let, uh, he was going to let it defeat him. And so he went to the cross, and after dying for the sins of the world, his resurrection from death sealed his victory over uh, all of our evil that has befallen us. And we have an opportunity to enter into relationship with him as a result, and death is defeated. And he offers up his own righteous life as a gift to those who would follow him. And so if you follow Jesus this morning, he has given you and bestowed on you a righteousness that is not your own. He has given it to you freely for you to, to live in and, and to basically live in grace, something that you haven't earned. And of course, this all leads to a restoration of all things that will take place one day. The disciples of Jesus, that's us. We've set our future hope on his promises to be completely fulfilled in the redemption of the world and to set all things right. And so there is a time coming. In the, we live in this balance, we've heard it before, of the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. And we live in the not yet, but there is, or we live in the now, but the not yet is coming when all things will be made right. And the sin and death and the destruction that we experience in our world on a daily basis that will be resolved. He will make all things new and people from all nations will submit to his love and his justice. It's an amazing story. It's the story of God with his people. And so that's the context that we enter the Christmas season. And sometimes it's lost on us because as we go about our business in our culture, we forget that there is a big story. And here we are this morning in the Gospel of Luke. And Luke begins his story, and he sets a context for us in verse 5, where he starts to tell the story about the preparations for this Savior that was promised so long ago in the Old Testament. And in five short words, or four short words, I guess. Did I say five? No, I, I can't even spell. I can't even spell. So there's six words. I said setting the context in four. I can pick four. When Herod King Judea. <laughs> How's that? 
Oh, I know, I know. Uh. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. You know, it really annoys me when one of my former students from a long time ago is giving it back to me now on a Sunday morning, right? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, I need that. Yeah. Uh, who's ushing this morning? Could they just, yeah. Just. Oh, thank you. But let's look at the context of this story when Herod was king of Judea. It might seem an unimportant historical reference, but it's a clear reminder to the readers because at that time they would have understood that there's a lot more going on than when, the, when they say when Herod was uh, king of Judea. And just doing a little bit of research, it's easy to find out a lot about Herod, this Herod. Herod was a paranoid puppet Jewish king. Actually, his, his family were Jewish converts, but he was a paranoid guy, paranoid leader, always afraid that someone was going to usurp his throne, and he was controlled by the Romans. And they actually call him Herod the Great, because not because of how great a person he was, but because of some of the things he did. And so, actually, one of the things he did was he actually built the temple that we see referred to in the scriptures this morning. But Herod was also beyond cruel. When he first was instilled as king of Judea, he had conveniently 40 priests murdered, 40 Jewish priests murdered. He killed his favorite wife. He had 10 because he suspected infidelity. Herod also killed three of his sons and also killed his uncle and his mother-in-law, all because of his paranoia. Caesar Augustus, who was a close friend of his, was quoted as saying, because if you know anything about Jewish law, the Jews would not eat pork, right? And Caesar Augustus, who's a Roman, a Roman emperor, said, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. You think about that. And lest we forget, he was also the paranoid leader who oversaw the murder and the ordered the murder of all males under the age of two upon hearing the birth of Jesus. And it's believed that the number was somewhere around 14,000. It was a threat to his throne. And so Herod's time and this time in the time of Israel was equated to the darkest and most evil days that uh, we could remember. But God, but God was at work in this waiting and in the darkness. And for 400 years prior to this writing for 400 years there was silence for 400 years nothing the old testament ends and for 400 years the people hear nothing from god and over that 400 years of silence god was getting ready to turn on the lights with the celebration of the birth of jesus that we heard about already getting ready to reveal the one who would point to the Savior, the point to Jesus. There is a temptation to say that God has forgotten us, and against this background, Luke turns his attention to Zechariah, using means we might least expect. And so the, the story proceeds. 
And Luke begins his gospel with this surprising story, the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we're told that they're righteous before God. They're obedient, they're devoted, they believed in the faithfulness of God. They had credentials. Zechariah was a priest. He was a priest that every year would minister uh, in the temple. Elizabeth, his wife, was actually the daughter of a priest. And so they had credentials, but not according to the script. They were childless, and they were also old. Now, in those days, they were, if, if the Bible says, if the scriptures say that they were old or they were aged, it means they, they were at least 60 years old. At least. And that's old. Someone forgot to tell them that 60 is the new 40. But being, but being 63 myself, I don't consider myself old, but in that time, of course, things were much different. And there are still places in the world today where you go and you meet people, and I've been there in Africa where you meet people who, you know, you meet them and then you find that, you know, they, like, you say to yourself, my goodness, they, they, they must be really elderly. And come to find out they look like they're 75 or 80 years old and they're 50. So we have to remember the context of the story. So these guys... Zechariah and Elizabeth were aged. They were at least 60. And in that culture, forget about the fact that he was a priest and she was the daughter of a priest and they were faithful to God and so on. If you didn't have children, that was a source of shame and disgrace. Much more so if you were a priest. It's even more hurtful when you think about, and it's almost enough to rub it in, their names and what their names meant. Zechariah's name meant whom the Lord remembers. And Elizabeth's name means my God is abundance. The name means one thing, but their story means another. And in that shame-honor culture, children were a sign of God's blessing. And so there was a contradictory kind of thing going on here with Zechariah and Elizabeth. People would have looked at them and they would have said, oh, sure, they're priests and so on, but God must not be happy with them. There would have been the thought that God was judging them, and they would have been the source of conversation around some people's dinner table, I'm sure. But isn't it just like God to choose the most unlikely of persons for his purposes? Remember that. God takes the most unlikely of people. And so as the story goes, Zechariah comes to minister in the temple as one of God's priests. And as a priest, and I could say a lot here, but I'll keep it short just in the, uh, in the observance of time. As a priest, he served in the temple, his group of priests served in the temple for two one-week periods a year. And so they came to Jerusalem. And he was one of approximately 18,000 priests in total that ministered in the temple every year. He was one of 18,000. He was a faithful unknown. 
And as was their custom, they drew lots. And so they drew lots to find out who would be the priest that would go into the holy place to offer the incense worship in the temple. And wouldn't you know it, Zechariah's number was picked. And in the mundane of his regular duties, which he did every year for that two-week period, he was given a once-in-a-lifetime task. And theologians and historians would say that for Zechariah to be picked at all was amazing. I remember years ago going to a hockey game at the Aiken Center, and they have 50-50 draws. And I remember some of you, many of you would know John and Lisa Robertson, who are, are actually leading a church in Charlottetown now, and they were at the hockey game. And they needed to, they, they, at the time, they, they didn't have a lot of financial means, and they needed to book tickets to go to Toronto for something. It was family-related, perhaps, I can't recall. And they needed something like $750 at the time for two round-trip tickets. Now, I'm dating the situation, of course. Good luck. But they needed to have that money. So just on a whim, at the hockey game, John bought a 50-50 ticket. Well, didn't they win? And it was around 800 bucks that they won, right? So they're, but and you look around at the Aiken Center at the time, this was when the Fredericton Canadians were playing here and the place was packed. The chances of him winning that were pretty slim. I have to think somehow God had a way of working things out, not that he's into lotteries. But Zechariah's number was picked, and he's given this once-in-a-lifetime shot. And we have to remind ourselves when we read the story that we have the benefit of hindsight and we know the rest of the story, but not so with Zechariah. So we read this and we say, oh yeah, well we know, like, we know the drill. Come on, get to the good stuff. But Zechariah is completely unaware of what was going on. It w he would have thought it was a massive privilege just to be picked. And he was picked. And so he's alone in that space. He enters the temple. He goes into the holy place. He's not in the holy of holies. He's in the holy of place. I won't go into all the structural significance of the rooms in the temple, but just to say he's there alone, and he's given the task of offering incense, worship to God. And remember, it's been 400 years. 400 years. Our nation wasn't even a nation 400 years ago. My family has been in Canada, in Atlantic Canada. My roots go back to 1670 or so. Longer than my family's been here. I looked in the, I looked in the, um, in, in the, great, the great source, Wikipedia. This date in history, 1622, 400 years ago. And 400 years ago, there were a number of things that had taken place. I don't even, you know, I have a clue what, you know, one of the only things that I kind of recognized was that the calendar as we know it today was adopted in the late 16th century and brought into, brought into uh, existence officially in 1622. So think about that. Because New Year's used to be in March. Now it's January 1st. Well, that's when it started in much of the world. It's 400 years. That's a long time. And so while Zacharias in the holy place, 
as he's alone in this place, God's messenger shows up. And the angel of the Lord, Gabriel, and the last time we see Gabriel is way back in the Old Testament, some 600 years prior, referenced in the book of Daniel. Gabriel appears to Zechariah out of nowhere in this routine hour. And Zechariah would have been performing the incense ritual on that day, either at 9 o'clock or 3 o'clock. And in that routine, he shows up. And his response, which is quite a biblical response, and if you look at in the scriptures when individuals would, would respond to angelic presences, they were afraid. And fear was his first reaction We see that even with the shepherds, don't we? Not long after this in the story. And Gabriel says, Don't be afraid, for your prayers have been heard. God has heard your prayer. And I believe that Gabriel, in his reference to answering his prayer, was not just, We have heard your prayer and you will have a child. I think that's the secondary thing. God has heard your prayers in reference to the prayers that have been prayed daily for 400 years. And he says, God has heard. And he is going to perform and he's going to intervene in history. It's been 400 years. God has heard your prayer. The prayer of the priests for the deliverance of the nation by a needed Messiah, a Savior, to come and deliver the people. And he comes in the darkness, and he speaks to us in the silence. I've heard your prayer. And so the answer will exceed Zechariah's expectations, because not just does he say, I'm going to answer the prayer, that you've been praying as a people for 400 years for deliverance. Because you have to remember that for 400 years, it wasn't an easy 400 years. It was one tyrant after another ruling the people. It was one exile after another. It was difficult times and not hearing God. The story does remind us, as I mentioned earlier, about another couple Abraham and Sarah, because not only does the angel say, I've heard your prayer, but as a sign to you, I will, you know, your wife is going to bear a child in her old age. Sound familiar? The parallel is obvious. And as a sign, many will rejoice at John's birth, because the angel said, you'll name him John, and everything that John is and who he will be, it'll be similar to, and he's in fact called Elijah. And so in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, the last words of the Old Testament, they say this, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he'll turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so... The angel is promising deliverance for the nation through his son, 
who will prepare the people for the coming Messiah. It's amazing. It's amazing. In preparing for this, I had to try to put myself in the shoes of this guy and to think about what kind of time it would have been to have not heard anything from God, yet remain faithful for his whole life, but the life of the nation for 400 years. And so the hearts of the people are promised to turn to God through his son who will prepare the people for the coming Messiah. And so what's Zechariah's response to all this? The drama of God's redemptive pur purpose unfolding here before our eyes, God is faithful and at work even when Zechariah's response to this is poor. We already know that he's faithful. We already know that he's committed, that he has given his life to God in, in his service all his life as his wife as well. But he doubts. I mean, I can just imagine the scene. And what should be a very short time in the holy place is taking longer than what might be expected. And basically, Zechariah is like, any chance for a sign? Can you imagine Gabriel's expression, perhaps? You mean, you don't believe me? I mean, I've come all the way from the presence of God for you, and you mean to tell me you don't believe me? I'm here. I was sent to speak to you. And so, yeah, I'll give you a sign, okay? And so... There's no speaking or hearing for nine months. There's your sign. And as we heard last week, nothing's impossible with God, and he acts beyond what we can ask for or imagine. And so, Zechariah cannot speak. And later, if you look at the scriptures in the same passage, you will understand that he likely could not hear either. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the sanctuary. Something's up. And up to this point, Zechariah was the only one to have experienced the breakthrough. Now, the people realize because he's been in there so long, something must have happened. Now, there were times prior to this 400-year period, period of silence that if the priest was in there too long, the assumption was that the priest was what? Dead. Because there would have been something, the priest would have done something improper or his heart would have been right, so on. And they would have had to retrieve him out of there. But he's taking longer. The people know that something's up. And he comes out of the holy place. And the people realize that he's seen a vision that God has come through. And how do they realize it? Because he can't speak. He's flailing away, trying to explain what has gone on. And I can imagine the expression on Zachariah's face. Can't communicate what's taken place. But the people would have realized that in some strange way, does this actually mean that the silence has been broken, that our waiting has, is, is coming to an end? My question is, 
how did he continue his week of service in the temple? I love it when it says, oh, when it was over, he returned home. So he still had to perform the regular temple duties, not the incense, because that was once. But he still had to be there. And when it was done, he went home. And he had to carry on his duties. But he was, he was unable to speak, unable to hear for the rest of his service. Word would have been spreading that something was going on. See, he returned home. And God grants them fertility. Is it impossible? Not so. There was a chance... And it happened that the intervention of God was present in their lives. And Elizabeth basically says that he's taken away my disgrace of having no children. But also, what's implied here is that God is taking away the disgrace of the nation. Because he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and vice versa. And he'll turn the hearts of the nation towards him. And so the disgrace of the nation will be removed as well through the coming Savior. And John will point the way to that, and more on that on Christmas Eve. Are you tracking with me this morning? We're good? So, a few questions. Don't you hate these questions? How do we feel about waiting? Do you like waiting? Who would say that they like waiting? The other day, I was visiting my dad in St. John at the nursing home on Thursday, and I had to make my way back from the north end to the west side. And they have the Harbor Bridge, which is the main artery connecting the west side to the north end of St. John. They have the Harbor Bridge down to one lane, not to one lane. Now, how do, I don't know why they were doing this in the middle of the busy day, but they had it down to one lane. So they had flagmen at either end of the bridge, and they would let 10 minutes of traffic go through one way, stop, 10 minutes go through the other way. So basically, the only other way to get from one side of the city to the other, if not the Harbor Bridge, is the Reversing Falls Bridge. So me, in my brilliance, figured, I'm not taking the Harbor Bridge, because that was backed up two kilometers. And so I snaked and weaseled my way from the nursing home through the North End, because I know St. John well, I'm from there, I knew how to get to Douglas Avenue. And if you know Douglas Avenue, Douglas Avenue is about a kilometer and a half that takes you from Main Street directly to the Reversing Falls Bridge. Smarty Pants says, I'm getting on that bridge, I'm gonna be smart everywhere else. I turned the corner onto Douglas Avenue, stopped. And I was in traffic for 40 minutes. And I'm like, What am I preaching on on Sunday? <laughs> and so I just kind of had to embrace it, right? And actually enjoyed the time alone in the car. But what's your response? What's your response to waiting? As Tom Petty once sang, the waiting is the hardest part, right? Waiting's a hard thing to do. It's difficult because we just can't adjust it or avoid it. It reminds us we're not in control as much as we think we are. If you think you're in control of your life, I've got news for you. You're not. Everything in our culture would say that you are in control of your life. You are not in control. And there's times in our life we must wait. It's a hard thing to do. 
waiting patiently in our spiritual life, I believe, is foundational for us. Because God wants to transform us in the waiting. And that's often more important than the thing that we're actually waiting for, isn't it? He transforms our lives, and he speaks to us in the waiting. He comes to us in the waiting. I was in the superstore, again, in to just get a bunch of bananas on Thursday. I got into the self-checkout line. There's like 30 people in it. I was like, what is this? And as I'm standing there in the line, like, I can't recount the story because it's to be continued. But I heard a conversation taking place behind me, and I felt immediately the Holy Spirit within me prompt me to talk to them, to be continued. And so God comes in the waiting. When you're waiting, he speaks. Because if I'm honest, like, I'd love to hear God speak to me a lot more than I do. Anybody in my shoes? I'd love to hear God speak. And so over and over in the scriptures, we see examples of this. So ask yourself this question. What are you waiting for right now? What are you longing for right now? What is it that you're hoping for today? Perhaps you have some relationship issues that are just killing you. Perhaps you are financially in a bad place and you're just like, how is this ever going to turn around? Perhaps you have some family challenges that are just excruciating. What are you waiting for today? I would encourage you this morning to hold that before God and to give it to God and ask him this morning as we prepare for the coming, the celebration of the coming of the Messiah, ask God to speak to you in your waiting. And a faithful response to waiting is prayer because when we're in relationship with God, we have an opportunity to speak to him and for him to speak to us. So Zechariah and Elizabeth handled their personal disgrace and disappointment by continuing to trust God and express confidence in the fact that God was in control. This also extended to their waiting for the redemption of their people. And so folks, today, there's things in my life that I'm waiting for. Many of them are family-related, and I know some of you know some of the things going on in my life. But I'm also waiting for a move of God, too. I'm waiting, just as Zachariah and Elizabeth were waiting for something in their own life personally, we're also waiting for God to grace himself in our world in an obvious manner, and we see people come into relationship with him in mass in a mass scale, we call that revival. We're trusting and waiting for that, aren't we? So what's my response? Do I continue to show up in faithfulness, or do I grow because of the waiting to become disillusioned and disappointed? You have a choice. We have a choice. As we are in this Christmas season, we have the choice to throw it in and walk away 
and chalk it up to disappointment and saying God didn't come through. Or we can be those who say, you know what? I'm going to defy my circumstances and I'm going to wait for God. And I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him. And lastly, do I have a transactional view of God in my expectation of God's blessings in my life? This is a big one, folks. It's easy to slip into this type of view. It's a means of getting something from God. And I know people that are like this. They, when everything's going fine, it's good. And they have this innate sense that things are going fine because they've done something for God. And when things don't go right, it's like, hey, God, but I have done this. I have done that. I have... And so there's a transactional view of God, which is faulty. God is faithful. He's in control regardless. And so I look around this room, and I know many of your stories, and I know many of you who are in the waiting who don't have a transactional view, because if you did, you wouldn't be here, because your life is so difficult that if it were dependent on God rewarding you for your faithfulness, you would have walked away long ago, but you haven't. Because God's presence in your life demands that you stay and that you wait and that you trust him. They um, Elizabeth and Zechariah stuck with God. I must gather, I must decide to gather in my community. And I love this community because I get encouraged being here with you. So in my waiting, in my personal affairs, I'm waiting with you. And you know what folks, as a result, I have a song to sing. My song is one of worship to God. And when I worship God, it's an expression of my faithfulness to God, even in not having any feelings, but trusting in a Savior who has delivered my life. And when I look around the room, it is so encouraging when I see you worship, because I know your stories. I know that when you worship God, that you're worshiping God despite your circumstances and you confront your circumstances not with disillusionment and disappointment but with faithfulness. Folks, you have a song to sing this morning. John, who was born to Zechariah and Elizabeth, could go, I could say more about the reason why they named him John, but I won't this morning. But his, no, his name means God is gracious. And I want to tell you this morning that God is gracious to you. God is gracious to me. When we experience painful experiences, he's gracious to us. God has forgiven you. He's provided a means for forgiveness and restoration through Jesus Christ, who we sing about this week, who we've sung about this morning. And he provides a way for you. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. And so there's a personal and a corporate aspect to this. We wait personally, and we wait corporately for what God wants to do through his spirit, in his people, and in our lives. So I'm going to invite you to stand if you're able. And I know, I know. Kind of a solemn message for the week before Christmas, Gary. Like, seriously, what about fa-la-la-la-la? -la -la -la? 
But this is fa-la-la-la-la. This is a demonstration, as we see in the story, of the faithfulness of God, despite silence, despite disappointment, we see God's faithfulness. So I'm going to invite you this morning, because I'm part of this community, and I just am inviting you this morning, if you want, if, you're, if you know what you're waiting for this morning, I'm going to invite you just to put your hands up like this. I just want to lead us in a prayer as we continue faithfully to wait for God. Lord Jesus, this morning, we thank you for your great faithfulness to us, that you have come and you've restored our lives. You've given us an opportunity to believe that you are the Savior of the world. And we put our trust in you this morning, and we say, God, that we need you. We can do nothing but turn to you. Who else can we go to that has the words of life? You do. And so, Lord, this morning, we give you all those things in our lives that we are waiting for. And we trust you with them. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship God this morning.